You know, as we look at the last month from what happened in Orlando to Dallas to Minnesota to the south, I mean, literally all over this country, we just see tragedies happening. And we need to begin to understand where change happens and what it takes to bring about revival. And so we're going to go a little different way. Huh? We're not going to look at the, uh, uh, the series we've been in, which is Loving the World Around Us, even though, as you will see as we go through this this morning, there's a lot of things that apply to that. But my prayer is that, that you will be blessed for being here today. And, and, and if this is the only time you ever come to this place, I really believe that when you leave here, you'll, you'll go, yeah, I was supposed to be there today. So let's start. In 1857, there was a 46-year-old man named Jeremiah Lampier who lived in New York City. Jeremiah loved the Lord tremendously, but he didn't feel that he could do much for the Lord until he began to feel a burden for lost people, and he accepted an invitation from his church to be an inner-city missionary. And so in July of 1857, he started walking up and down the streets of New York, passing out tracts and talking to people about Jesus. But he wasn't having much success. And then the Lord put on his heart, he said, uh, why don't you try prayer? And so he did. And so he printed up a bunch of tracts and he passed them out to anyone and everyone he met. And he invited everyone who wanted to come to the third floor of the old North Dutch Reformed Church on Fulton Street in New York City from 12 to 1 to join him that Wednesday for prayer. He passed out hundreds and hundreds of flyers. He put up posters everywhere he could. But when Wednesday came at noon, nobody showed up. So Jeremiah got on his knees and he started praying. And for 30 minutes he prayed by himself when finally five other people walked in. The next week, 20 people came. The next week, 30 to 40 people came. They then decided to meet every day from noon to one to pray for the city. Before long, a few ministers started coming, and they said, you know what? We need this in our churches. Within six months, there were over 5,000 prayer groups meeting every day in New York. Soon, the word spread all over the country. Prayer meetings were started in Philadelphia and D.C. In fact, President uh, Franklin Pierce started going almost every day to a noonday prayer meeting. By 1859, some 15,000 cities in America were having downtown prayer meetings every day at noon, and thousands of people were one to Jesus Christ. Now, here's the great thing about this revival that took place. There wasn't a famous preacher associated with it. There wasn't a famous person who had his name attached to it. It started because one man had a passion from God to pray. One man. And he started a revival and a movement. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, um, what I'm going to talk to you today has a lot to do with where we are right now as a nation and the things that we've been through. And so let me ask you this. How many of us 
are hoping for things to change and turn around in our nation and in our state, in our city, in our homes. I mean, how many of us are hoping for that? Anybody? Are we hoping for change? Are we hoping for revival? Let me see your hands. Show them. I think that's what we all want. But let me ask you this. Are you willing to do whatever it takes in order to bring about that change? You see, we hope for it. We want it. We want to see it. But the question is, are we willing to do what it takes in order for change to happen, in order for revival to really come? There's a great verse in 2 Chronicles chapter 17, I mean chapter 7, verse 14, that helps us to see how change can happen. I want you to listen to this for a moment, and then we're going to talk about it uh, in, in just a moment. It goes like this. Then if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and I will restore or heal their land. You see, change doesn't happen just because we hope for it. Change happens because God's people get serious about living like they are God's people. That's when change happens. And so I want us to unpack this verse to see what God has for us. But before we do, pray with me. Lord, I just pray for these next few moments. And again, God, just like Jim said, I want my words to be yours. And so use me today as your vessel to get across your message so that your spirit can work in our lives. That's what we want. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bibles, open them up to that passage in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. Now this verse is often quoted in reference to the need for revival in America. I mean, I've heard it a lot over the last year or two. I've heard people talk about it, I've heard preachers talk about it, I've, heard, I've seen it on Facebook. We say it in reference to the need for revival in America, and without a doubt, it is probably the best known and most loved verse in all of Chronicles. In fact, the reality is it's probably the only one you know. I mean, when it comes down to it, when it comes to Chronicles, it's probably the only verse you've heard and probably even know. Now, as we look at this this morning, I want us to keep in mind the context in which it was written so that we can interpret it and apply it more accurately. You see, Second Chronicles records the, the construction of the temple under the direction of King Solomon. And in chapter 6, Solomon knelt down before God's people. He spread out his hands upward toward heaven and he broke out into this amazing prayer of dedication. And after he prayed, and we move into chapter 7, verses 1 to 3 say this. When Solomon finished praying, fire flashed down from heaven and burned up the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glorious presence of the Lord filled it. Basically, at that moment, they were out of job. <laughs> you know, God took over. When all the people of Israel saw the fire coming down in the glorious presence of the Lord filling the temple, they fell face down on the ground and they worshiped and praised the Lord, saying, He is good. His faithful love endures forever. Now, wouldn't it have been awesome 
to have experienced that prayer. And wouldn't it have been awesome to have seen literally the heavens open and fire coming out of the sky, out of the heavens, engulfing and and taking those burnt offerings and sacrifices. And then to watch the very presence of the Lord fill up the temple. I mean, how awesome would that have been to see? And so Solomon and all the people, they dedicated the temple to God. And after celebrating and praising God for over two weeks, verse 10 says that the people went back to their homes with joyful hearts. And then later that night, after everyone had left, the Lord appeared to Solomon to tell him that his prayers had been heard. That's the immediate context leading into verse 14. Let me read verse 14 again. Then, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sins, and I will restore their land. Now, here's the thing about that verse. The verse gives us four commands and three promises. But for most of us, we would rather focus on the promises rather than the commands. We would rather look at, God, what will you do, rather than, God, what do you need us and want us to do? It's a lot easier to focus on the promises than the commands. Now, let me ask you, as we, as we begin to unpack this, who's God addressing in this, in this verse? Who's he addressing? Well, he's addressing his people. He's addressing those who are called by his name. In the context of our passage, it's the nation of Israel. And God wants to make sure that his people act like his people. Now, as we put it in context for us today, what we see is this and what we discover is this. Guess what? You and I are included in that. Because if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, if he is Lord of your life and you've surrendered to him, you are God's people. We are the ones who now are called by his name. And the same thing that was true in the Old Testament with his people is the same thing that is true for us. He says, if you are going to call yourself my people, then start acting like it. Start living like you belong to me. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 puts it this way. But you are a chosen people, a royal priest, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. You were chosen to tell about the wonderful acts of God who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. You see, you and I have been taken out of the darkness. We've been brought into the light. And our job is to tell of the incredible things that God is doing. Why? Because we're his kids. He's our dad. We are his people. And it's time we start living and acting like we are his. Now, why is this so important? Well, it's because God has given us the responsibility of bringing revival and change. It's our responsibility. He's given us that responsibility. But the problem is this. Again, we want the promises of the verse without having the commands of the verse. 
Or to put it another way, we just want to sit back hoping that revival and change will take place within our nation without understanding that revival won't happen within the nation until it first of all happens within our hearts and our lives. This is where it begins. This is where it starts. It starts within each and every one of us who have taken Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And so if revival and change begins with us, his followers, then what are the commands in this verse that can help us to bring about that change? Well, let's look at those for a moment. The first is simply this. It's humility. It's humility. In other words, it begins with a humble heart and a humble spirit. Or put another way, it begins with brokenness. It begins with brokenness. I mean, God's got to break our spirit. He's got to break our hearts. Where that we really long for change to happen and long for revival to take place. But we understand, first of all, it's got to take place within our hearts. It starts with us. Isaiah writes, Our holy God lives forever in the, in the highest heavens. And this is what he says. Though I live high above in the holy place, I am here to help those who are humble and who depend only on me. Let me ask you, who do you depend on? Who do you depend on? You depend on yourself, your retirement, your work, your job, your family. I mean, what do you depend on? Your knowledge, what you've been given, what do you depend on? He says, he says, I help those who are humble and who depend only on me. I mean, here's reality. The reality is it's not easy for the average American to be humble because we tend to be very proud people. James Hunter wrote, we Americans generally want to think of ourselves as good people. That, in many respects, is where the trouble begins. This is what he meant by that. In other words, until we're ready to admit that there's nothing good within us and that we can do nothing without him, we will continue to struggle with pride. Until we're ready to admit, there really isn't anything good in me because of sin. Sin just kind of marks my life. And because of that, I need to begin to depend only on him. When we are ready to admit that, that's when pride can get out of the picture. And pride will begin to be removed from our life. James writes, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Here's the thing. We need to really take a look at our hearts on this one. Because pride will always exalt self and exclude God. Pride will always exalt self and exclude God. So he, he says, you want change to take place in your life. If you want things to, to happen in this country, then it starts with you. And you've you got to get rid of pride. You've got to humble yourself. Your spirit needs to be broken. Second thing is this, he says, prayer. Then if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and what? Pray. It's prayer. You see, a humble spirit leads to life-changing prayer. Back in chapter 6, I mentioned that Solomon prayed this amazing prayer. 
And I just want to give you a glimpse of what this prayer looked like. In verses 14 and 15, this is what he says. He prayed, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in all of heaven and earth. You keep your covenant and show unfailing love to all who walk before you in wholehearted devotion. You have kept your promises or your promise to your servant David, my father. You made that promise with your own mouth and with your own hands you have fulfilled it today. Verse 19. Nevertheless, listen to my prayer and my plea, O Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is making to you. Verse 21. May you hear the humble and earnest requests from me and your people Israel when we pray toward this place. Yes, hear us from heaven where you live. And when you hear, forgive. What an awesome prayer. I mean, this is a prayer of desperation. This is a prayer that literally goes before the throne of God with a sense of urgency. Because they're wanting to get things right with their God. And it comes with boldness. And it comes with passion. You see, if we want to change to take place in our lives, then we, we must humble ourselves and pray. And as we pray, it's, we need to do this third thing, and that is seeking. You see, life-changing prayer happens as we seek the very face of God. Then, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. We've got we've to be seeking the very face of God. You see, the idea of seeking implies a desire for something of a great value. You remember in Luke 15, we, we talked about just a couple weeks ago? In Luke 15, when Jesus told the parables, you remember the shepherd? When that sheep, that one sheep was lost, he leaves the 99 to what? To seek after that one that's lost. And the woman who lost the coin, literally she drops everything she's doing and she scours the house seeking for that one lost coin. Or how about the man seeking the pearl of great price who, having found it, gives all that he has in order to purchase it? You see, when we, when we seek something of value, it will cause us to rearrange our schedule and it will cause us to refocus our priorities until we find that, that we're seeking. We are to seek the very face of God. Jeremiah 29, 13 and 14 says, When you come looking for me, you'll find me. And then look what he does. He ups the ante a little bit. Yes, when you get serious about finding me and want it more than anything else, I'll make sure you won't be disappointed. Are you seeking the very face of God? Do you want it? Are you serious about finding him? Now, how do we seek God's face? Well, in the Bible, the, this phrase is used of someone desiring an audience with a prince or with God himself. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 6 and 7 says, Seek the Lord while you can find him. Call on him now while he is near. Let the wicked change their ways and banish the very thought of doing wrong. 
Let them turn to the Lord that he may have mercy on them. Yes, turn to our God for he will forgive generously. And the psalmist writes in Psalm 27, 8, My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Let me ask you, are you intentionally seeking an audience with the God of the universe? Are you intentionally seeking an audience with the creator of all things? An audience with your Father in heaven? Are you seeking that in your life so that you can simply do his will and not yours? Are you willing to refocus your priorities so that you might come into the very presence of the one who loves you more than you'll ever imagine or know? And so we need to, we need to seek him. But lastly, we need to turn. It's a turning away from. We're to turn from our wicked ways. Then if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Let me ask you, do you honestly want, to, want change to happen within our nation? Do you? Especially if that means that you have to be willing to turn from sin and turn to God. You see, it's one thing to want change to happen. It's one thing to want revival to happen. But if it means turning away from sin in my life and turning toward God, am I willing to do that? Are you willing to put the way you live on the line in order to do whatever it takes to obey God's will for your life? Are you willing to do that? You see, just as God's people in the Old Testament turned their backs on God time after time after time, and if you know anything about the history of Israel, you know that happened. And the problem is we still have that same tendency today. I mean, they were prone to follow idols, and so are we. I mean, we need to recognize that anything in our lives that keeps us from being all that God desires for us is a wicked way. It's an idol in our life. And so maybe this prayer of David needs to be our prayer today. And it's found in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. David simply writes, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Can you pray that today? And mean it? I mean, can you honestly pray, God, I just want you to search me. Search my heart, God. I mean, after all, you already know it. And then, God, I want you to test me. And God, I want you to know all those things about me, those anxious thoughts, those anxious moments, that sin that's in my life. Point it out. Anything that offends you, point it out, God. And then lead me along the path of everlasting can you pray that today? Here's the thing. There's really no way to soften the command to turn away from our wicked ways. You see, God accepts only one response to sin, and it's not rationalizing, and it's not excusing, and it's not comparing ourselves to others. He demands that we turn from it, period. 
Now, those are the four commands. It's to humble ourselves. It's to pray. It's to seek the very face of God. And it's to turn from our wicked ways, to repent, to get rid of the sin that's in our life. That's what he says we have to do. Because why? Because we are his people. We are called by his name. And if we're his people, then we need to act like his people. But he also gives us three promises. Because you see, when God's people follow God's plan, they receive God's promises. And so let's look at those for just a moment. The three promises. The first is this. He promises to hear. God will hear. I mean, how awesome is that to know that God will hear us? I mean, think about your everyday conversations. I mean, this happens every day of your life. You will be, and it doesn't matter if you're husband and wife or whatever. You'll be talking, and you're not really sure if the other person is listening. Because they're only picking up about every other word. Because one eye is on them, and one eye is on the TV, or one eye is on the computer, or one eye is on their cell phone. I mean, that's just how we are. And isn't it awesome to know that we have a God who says, I don't let anything else distract me, because when you pray, I listen. You have my full attention. I will give you every part of me, because I love you that much. You see, when we pray the way God directs us to pray, he promises to hear our prayers. We don't have to worry about getting God's attention. We've already got it. He's available 24-7. And as the Bible says, he delights in hearing the prayers of his people, his kids. So we have the promise that God will hear. We also have the second of all, the, the promise that God will forgive. He'll forgive. To forgive means to send away or to let go. Psalm 103, 12 says, He has removed our sins as far as from us as far as the east is from the west. Think about that verse a moment. We've talked about that before. He has removed our sins as far as far from us as the east is from the west. Remember, I've told you before, if we had a globe up here and you could see it, what you'd discover is this. You can only go north so far until you go south, and you can only go south so far until you go north. But if you go east, you'll always be going east. If you go west, you'll always be going west. What that tells me is this. That's how far God says he takes our sin away. It's as far as the east is from the west. It's gone. In other words, he forgives. 1 John 1.9 says, But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Now, let me ask you, who is this forgiveness for? I mean, who's it for? You see, the forgiveness is for God's people who are called by his name, who have humbled themselves and pray and seek his face and turn from their wickedness. You see, we're not praying that God will forgive the world. That's not what we're praying for, at least not initially. We're praying that God will forgive us because the world won't change until we do. And so we have to pray and we have to look inward and begin to see where we at before we can begin to pray outward. And then the third promise is this, God will heal the land. This last promise has to do with a blessing for the nation of Israel. When God's people followed God's plan, God sent healing to their land. During the reign of King Ahab, the land experienced a bad famine, and only after the prayers of Elijah did the rains come. You see, the word heal means to repair, it means to restore. 
So to understand this promise that he will heal, heal the land, we need to go back to verses 12 and 13 to set the context. This is what verses 12 and 13 said. Then one night, the Lord appeared to Solomon and said, I have heard your prayers and I have chosen this temple as the place for making sacrifices. At times, I might shut up the heavens so that no rain falls or command grasshoppers to devour your crops or send plagues among you. And then it goes right into verse 14. Then if my people... In other words, these things might happen, but if they happen, then this is what you do. You humble yourself. You pray. You seek, you seek the face of God. You seek my face, he says. You turn from your way, evil ways. Then I will heal your land. See, I believe that God is saying that at times he has to give us a wake-up call. Because at times we need it. And so for the people of Israel, there might be times when they stray, when they leave God, that he brings a drought. He, he, he causes locusts or plagues or whatever. And he wants them to understand that it, it doesn't happen because he doesn't care. It happens because he does care. Because he's trying to get us back, to restore the people back. He knows that it, it's what it takes in order for his people to humble themselves and to pray and to repent so that restoration can begin in their life. So let me ask you, has God ever allowed something in your life in order to get your attention, in order to wake you up so that, rest, so that the restoration process could begin? You ever had anything in your life that God's allowed to come in because it was a wake-up call? It was something you needed in your life to get your focus back on who he is so that you can begin to be restored back to him. Now, I want us to reflect. And I've asked April to come, and April's just going to play. And you'll see why in just a moment. Here's the thing. I believe God is wanting to send a revival through this great nation of ours. But the problem is we're looking in the wrong places and we're blaming the wrong people. I mean, we can't just gripe and complain about our leaders and about how bad things are in our country and think that somehow that's going to change things. The reality that we don't like to understand is this. We are the problem. America's problem is not so much in, this, in its systems, it's in us. God always intends for revival to start with his people. And sometimes it may be one person who has a passion to pray. Like Jeremiah Lamp here. Because when that happens, let me tell you, it will go from the Christian to the church to the community to the country and to the continents. And revival will break out and change will happen. But the question is, are you willing for it to start with you? Are you willing for it to start with you? Don't look to the next person. Don't look to the person you're right or left, the people in front, people in back. Are you willing for it to start with you in your life? Here's what we're going to do. This is what I believe God directed me in, and I appreciate the emails that I got because I want us to spend time this morning in prayer. 
And I want us to spend time this morning not praying for revival and change to happen in this country, first of all, but to ask for change and revival to take place in my heart, in this person. Because if it starts with me, then it can spread to others. And so we're going to pray today. And I'm going to invite you to come. April's going to play, and as she plays, I'm just going to invite you to come. We don't do this often, probably not as often as we should. I'm just going to invite you to come, and I just want you to fill the front. First service, we had the front filled with people just praying. I just want you to pray, God, humble my heart. God, help me to seek your face and pray with earnest and prayer and an urgency in my spirit. God, help me to get rid of those things that are separating me from you. Because, God, if I can get my life right and change can happen here, then I can begin to help change take place out there. And so let's pray. And let's lift up our hearts today. And as you pray, pray for those families that lost loved ones in Dallas. Pray for those families from the shootings in the other places, from Orlando to you name it. Pray for those things. Just get up where you are and just calm. And let's just fill this front with people who just want to pray. And let's just lift our hearts. If you don't want to come up, I would challenge you just to kneel where you're at. But just come. Come.